death is never uh, a part of what God wants for human beings. And to be honest, it's not something that any of us want for ourselves. It's the biggest fear in our life is death that's looming. What happens after death? Where do I go? Um, and so if that's true, which I think it is, and if that's reality that all of us are living in, then we should be people of life. We should be people who are for life. This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. I hope you're having a great December. Today's episode is bonus content. Um, back in August, Sina from Denmark shared her story and questions about God and Christianity and different things, different topics here on the podcast. And we had some additional episodes that we didn't get to air back in August. And this is one of them. This is a heavy topic. We're going to be talking about abortion. And wherever you land on this topic, I hope you take a listen. Yeah, I tried to be really sensitive to the different viewpoints that might be represented in people listening. Um, I try to put myself in other people's shoes in conducting this interview and, and also uh, articulating some of the objections and questions that you might have. Um, yeah, please let me know. Uh, but I, I do think that Robbie has some excellent points here. I especially love the end where he talks about the gospel. So uh, this is an important conversation to have. I don't want to shirk away from it. And I hope that you enjoy it. I, I just really am um, so thankful for conversations like this. And I hope whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your background, you find that this conversation is laced in truth and grace. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it after it airs. And also, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, real quick, I just want to say thank you for your support of listening. Uh, I would ask that you share episodes like this with a friend. And also, there are ways to support Finding Something Real, and we'd love your support. Uh, we are wrapping up fundraising for next year. Um, and if you go to findingsomethingreal.com, you'll see a button that says donate to Finding Something Real. There's more information about what we're fundraising for and why uh, we would love your support. And finally, you can also become a Patreon supporter if you would like. And Patreon supporters help with the overhead costs of keeping things running around here, including um, paying Taura and shout out to Taura who uploads this episode every week and is faithful like you wouldn't believe. And so uh, one of the things that I'm really grateful for this season is her, and I just wanted to say thank you. So anyway, findingsomethingreal.com, you can look for that at the top of the page. And finally, uh, if you are a young woman listening to this podcast, whether you agree with the things that are shared here today or not, um, if you have questions about God or Christianity or um, you're curious at all, I would love to talk with you about co-hosting an episode with me in 2024. And you can find uh, Beyond the Show at the top of the page on findingsomethingreal.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this bonus content. So friend, this is a sensitive topic today, but it's one you might be very familiar with. In fact, it might be something you've personally shied away from speaking about, but we're going to be talking about Christianity, life, and specifically abortion, the topic of abortion. And maybe like me, you love someone who's chosen in the past to have an abortion, and this conversation brings up all kinds of heavy emotion and questions. Or maybe it's a personal choice that you've made in your past. But we're not going to let uh, the discomfort or the sensitivity of this topic keep us from diving into it today. So welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we're starting off each month with a different young woman, sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. Our content is being curated by one of my favorite young women. She's our Danish exchange daughter, Sina. Sina couldn't be here today, but to give some context to this conversation, um, Sina's, I think, currently at a place, she's currently at a place where she says it's not really about the questions for her anymore. In fact, she recently shared that she intellectually is thinking she believes that the resurrection actually happened, but turning her life over to Jesus Christ is something beyond intellectual assent. It's surrender, and quite honestly, 
Sina has recently shared that she can only handle these kinds of conversations in small doses right now. So all that to say, I think she may have been somewhat relieved when she had a field trip for school today. But Sina, I love you. And if you ever listen to this, I hope it speaks grace and truth to you wherever you are at in life. So today's special guest is Robbie Lashua. Did I get it right? Yeah. You got it right. <laughs> Perfect. Robbie Lashua, an apologist and speaker with the organization Stand to Reason. Formerly, he was a pastor and associate professor at Mission Bible Institute and host of Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a weekly apologetics podcast. Having earned his bachelor's degree from Arizona Christian University, a master's of divinity from Phoenix Seminary, and a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University, our guest today has a passion for equipping the church with good reasons to believe in classical Christianity. Most importantly, Robbie has been married to his wonderful wife, Kelly, for over 13 years. Together, they are raising four kids. And on a personal note, of all the guests I've had on this season, today's guest made me evaluate some of my own views from a different perspective last time he was here. I'm super grateful to have him on again. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, Robbie Lashua. Welcome back. Thanks Robbie. so much, Janelle. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I love that you're always yeah. smiling, even when you're, you know, sharing on hard topics, Robbie. It's uh, such a joy to have you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I like to, I do like to smile. I, yeah. I do like that. Yeah, that's good. Love it either. Uh, you shared last time you were here, Robbie, um, about your ministry and faith journey. But we also had a great conversation about the resurrection and trusting the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we'll link that episode in the show notes. But you go around talking about hard topics from a Christian worldview. And I'm sure you get varied reactions to your talks and messages. What is the best part of your job? And what is the hardest? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the best part of my job, I think, is like I, I get to do what I'm passionate about. So I love apologetics. I love speaking. I love teaching. I love when people get it, like when you see the light bulb go on. So those things are just amazing to me. But but ultimate purpose behind that is like I just really enjoy doing something that's going to last forever. Um I'm just I'm thankful that that the Great Commission is a real thing and that um, what I do right now will count in eternity. And so I do. I think about that every day. I get up and I think about what I do now and how I live my life and what I share about Jesus is going to last forever. Mm -hmm. um, and so it motivates me. Right. It, it helps me not waste as much time as maybe I would. Um, but that that's one of the coolest things about my job is I get to do this thing that God's equipped me to do and he's gifted me to do and he's given me health and opportunity and time to do and it's going to last forever. So I, I I love that part of it. Um, worst part of my job. Hmm. Um, probably the worst part of my job now is because I, I, I work from home and stand to reason is in California, but most of us, you know, just work um, mobily. Um, I'm a real outgoing person and I love being around other people. And so most of my days I spend in my office uh, working on stuff or doing Zoom calls, and I don't get to hang out with people as much as I used to when I worked at a church. So that's probably the worst part of my job is just not seeing real humans all the time. Uh, I, I don't know. That's probably the worst part. Any plans to move to California anytime soon? No, oh, no, <laughs> no. I don't know if you know this, but Arizona does not really like California. Like We don't have... <laughs> We all go there for vacation and stuff to get out of the heat, but we really uh, we're kind of snobby towards we don't want to become like that. And I I don't want to move there. And uh, it's so expensive and the traffic and the politics. And no, I, I think I'm going to stay here. Plus, I mean, the real important part is all of my family's here. All of my wife's mm -hmm. family's here. So if we moved the four grandbabies away, um, that would not be good. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel the common cultural criticism of, hey, uh, and this is kind of a, a different direction, so I'll just warn you ahead of time, but the cultural criticism that I think is very prevalent right now, which is, hey, you're a privileged man talking about issues you have no business discussing. Do you hear some yeah. of that? And do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, sometimes people say that. Um and I mean, you respond with grace. I think the Bible's very wise about what it says. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath. Um, and so uh, when people say that, I will ask them a question. 
I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? And that's a common thing at Standard Reason we tell people to ask. Ask them, what do you, what do you mean that I'm a privileged man? Well, you know. No, I don't. That's why I asked you. <laughs> like, what, like, what do you mean by that, right? And now we can start having a conversation about what they're thinking and then even pressing them a little onto – uh, how did you come to that conclusion that I can't talk about these things because I'm a man? Like, what's your evidence or your reasoning for that opinion? Mm. Um, so I don't just say you're wrong. I ask them to clarify their view for me. Because um, sometimes people have never thought thought about it. They just say slogans. Um, that happens often. And then uh, if they have thought about it, now I can actually understand where they're coming from and address what the issues are that they have with me instead of just trying to guess at it. So asking clarifying questions is always my go-to when uh, those types of things happen. That's mm, a good tactic. Yeah, um, it is a good tactic. <laughs> so a question, when you are speaking at reality or different events for Stand a Reason, do you find that the audience is mostly friendly or are you getting pushback, especially as the culture, the culture um, leans more secular? Um, typically it's a friendly audience because anybody who's going to come to a Christian apologetics conference knows what it is and they like it. Um, <laughs> we don't have a lot of non, we have some, I mean, we do have some non-Christian people come, um, and that's great and we love it. Um, but yeah, by and large, it's a friendly audience that's already on board with what we're talking about and just wants to be trained on how to defend their faith. Mm. Well, it's funny. Um, I had a little claim to fame the other day, uh, <laughs> funny I was at a track meet and I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking a little bit about what I do with the podcast and she said oh yeah I went to this apologetics conference for um, teenagers last year in Bellevue or whatever and I uh -huh. said um, was it reality with Stand to Reason and she goes yeah, it was. And I said, oh, I've gotten to interview several guys. I know there. those guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And she, she, suddenly I was a lot cooler. Suddenly I was, That's you know, cool. which was well, funny. So <laughs> that means she doesn't know us at all. If that so makes thank you, you cooler, for yeah. elevating my uh, cool factor there. Yeah, um, anytime. Yeah. So what are your speaking topics? Robbie is about abortion. Um, mm -hmm. What got you interested in talking about that topic from a Christian perspective? Well, I think it's a huge issue morally for Christians, and we have to be able to respond to it, and we have to do something about it. I, I really do believe that it's like living in Nazi Germany and doing nothing about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't be silent. Uh, we have to speak up for people who are marginalized. We have to speak up for people who can't speak up for themselves. And I think that that is a Christian ethic to help people who, who can't help themselves. I, I, I just think that that's what Jesus was about. And so um, from my perspective, we have to be equipped to talk intelligently about abortion, to be able to field opposition and to clarify uh, why this is uh, the biggest genocide of our time period. Mm -hmm. I love playing the, the girl's advocate, right? When they're not here, um, mm -hmm. because I, I know in my spirit if I was a young woman who was pro-choice I would hear the word genocide and immediately feel defensive um, sure. I think um, and I know that you got to speak briefly with Sina last time uh, we won't air that conversation <laughs> uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, you know it, it's a sensitive topic there's a lot of things that are very emotionally um jarring and a lot of people steer away from these kind of conversations um mm -hmm. i think cena had mentioned in our very first recording together about being nervous to talk with someone who'd be good at talking about this topic um yeah. and when she talked more about that with me she was concerned that she would misrepresent her worldview i think is what she mm -hmm. said so you've talked with a lot of people who hold similar views i know you don't just talk to christian audiences um, and I know you've even shared some with Sina herself. So if you wouldn't mind clarifying, and if Sina ever listens to this, I hope that she gets to hear this part especially. But would you mind clarifying the secular cultural narrative? What do you think the arguments are for the pro-choice position? Well, the pro-choice position, um, there's a few different arguments that they make. Um, mostly today, it's, it's the argument from personal autonomy or choice that 
women should have the right to choose. And that's that's often what they'll say. So abortion rights are healthcare rights. And now, you know, you're forcing people to do things with their body that they don't want to do, they don't consent to do. Um, so that that's the main argument today. Uh, there used to be arguments about how, um, you know, the 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 unborn was just a clump of cells and things like that. Those have kind of faded away with the advancements in medical technology and ultrasound technology because we know it's not just a clump of cells. Um, but the main argument today is women's right to choose. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a it's an autonomy argument. Um, so that's where I would say most most people argue. I, I've met um, college professors who who have who have argued that they aren't for abortion, but they don't want women's rights being infringed upon. Mm -hmm. And so that is why they're pro-choice. They mm -hmm. think abortion is horrible and it's bad for everybody. However, a woman having that right, is why they are pro-choice. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's the main argument today. Yeah, I heard um, an analogy of a woman, and I'm sure you've seen this circulating around, but a woman chooses an abortion like a trapped animal chooses to chaff, or <laughs> chew off their own leg uh, when mm -hmm. they're caught in a trap. Yeah. Um, it's like it, no other option, right? But n lately in the culture, especially with the, over, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I've seen a lot more visceral um, defensiveness and in your face, like, uh, I'm thinking of that actress. Is it Alyssa? Uh, the one who used to be on growing pains or not growing pains. Uh, who's oh, the Melissa, uh, Alyssa Milano. Yeah. Where it's yeah, like, yeah. shout your abortion. You have nothing to yeah. be ashamed of. This is your choice. Do not yeah. infringe upon our rights, uh, going along with what you were saying. But then the other argument, and I think that, you know, in talking with Cena a little bit, I think she might agree with this. Like, is well, maybe it really is uh, a human being, but because it can't feel pain, because it's not born yet, because it's too small, um, it's really, it, it's life that's not as important as the life of the mom. Um, mm -hmm. So now that we've shared a couple <laughs> or arguments, and listen, if you're listening to this podcast and you're pro-choice and all of this drives you crazy or, or you're frustrated with this conversation, feel free to reach out and uh, share your position. Um, but because uh, both Robbie and I are pro-life, we'll move into the pro-life stuff. <laughs> but yeah. um, would you share why you choose to be pro-life even with those arguments? Because I don't think, uh, I mean, I think there's some validity to the things that people people say. Yeah. Um, well, I'm pro-life because, and, and I make an argument for the pro-life position without using scripture. Um, cause I, I don't think people who, who don't believe in the Bible, they're, they're not going to care what it says. So to yeah. quote verses at people, I don't think it's very effective. Um, so the two, uh, lines of argument, I think we should use are science and philosophy, because mostly science uh, is the, the king of knowledge in our day and age. Um, but we have, as the pro-life side of it, I know this sounds, this may sound arrogant, but we really do have all the evidence on our side. So um, to have a good, uh, to have a good argument, Janelle, you need a few things. You need an opinion or a, a statement or, you know, the, the pinnacle of what you're trying to push, your idea. But you also have to have reasons and evidence that hold that idea up. You can't just say whatever you want. There needs to be a reason for it. And so an argument's a lot like a house where you need you need a roof, but you have to have walls holding up that roof or it's not a very good roof, right? A roof on the ground is not a roof. And um, what we have going on in our culture is we have a lot of people with an opinion with no walls. We have a lot of people with a roof with no walls of reason and evidence holding it up. And so, you know, people will say love is love or my body, my choice, things like that. But their arguments, um, their opinions don't have evidence behind them. When it comes to the abortion argument, the, the pro-life side has all of the evidence on it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that we have uh, the only right opinion or the only opinion because the other side has opinions, but they don't have anything that back up their opinions other than I want women to be able to do this thing. Mm. And even like you said, like, you know, what Sina was saying, well, you know, if a baby can't feel, 
they're lesser, even though they are human. Um, all of the evidence uh, points away from that, actually, when we when we start to go through it. And so I like to argue from science and from philosophy when it comes to the pro-life movement. And so there's a couple of things that we really have to ask ourselves when it comes to abortion. The only question that needs to be answered with this discussion is what is the unborn? That's that's the golden ticket. And a lot of people will get uh, off track or, you know, red herringed and go off on a rabbit trail and argue about um, economics or argue about um, voting rights or choices or argue about education for the mom. And there's all of these things and people will get sidetracked from the main issue to talk about these other things. But the real question comes down to what is the unborn? If it is a human being, then I don't think any argument about finances or education can justify killing an innocent human being. But if it's not a human being, if the unborn's not, then we don't need to argue for it at all. There's no reason you need to justify it. It would be like taking out a gallbladder or removing an impacted molar or something like that. And so that seems to be the real question. Now, can we define what the unborn is? Can we know, can we figure out what it is to decide whether we should kill it or whether we shouldn't kill it? Does that make sense? Yeah, but as I'm sitting here as a woman, <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> who's had uh, nine pregnancies mm -hmm. and only four living babies. Um, mm -hmm. Those were, uh, you know, miscarriages, right? And mm -hmm. I know that women's reproductive rights and all the things that go into that, it's messy. It's convoluted, Robbie, right? And, I, sure. um, and I'm pro-life, but I'm going to share this because I think that it is important uh, in this discussion. Sometimes, um, especially since Roe v. Wade was overturned, I'll, I like to look at all the different news sources out there. Like I pick like sure. four or five that are completely opposite. I'll pick like something like Fox News and something like CNN, BBC and ABC. Like I just want to know all the things. And a lot of times the headlines about Roe v. Wade are not based on science or philosophy. Mm -hmm. They're based on a story and yep. they're true stories. And one of those stories could have been mine, to be honest, as I've mm -hmm. like been, you know, reading these different articles. I don't like, you know, reading things that make me upset, but sometimes I force myself to because I feel like it opens up my eyes. That's good. No, you yeah. should. Yeah. But I will say, you know, there was a, a season, my husband and I, we, we were struggling to have a family. We went to a reproductive clinic. I got pregnant. And they did the first ultrasound and the tech said, I think you may have two pregnancies, uh, one uh, in your uterus and one in your fallopian tube. And mm -hmm. so we need to go and we need to get uh, another opinion. Um, and it was like an emergency situation kind of thing. We want you to get an, an ultrasound today. So it was like mm -hmm. three hours later, the specialized ultrasound. In those three hours of time, Robbie, I had this moment where I thought, what would I do? if I had one healthy baby and one that couldn't make it. And mm -hmm. the thing is, um, technically, that would be abortion, right? Mm -hmm. And according to our culture- Or a tubular pregnancy. Yep, yeah, but yeah. the tubular pregnancy to terminate that, which could kill the life of a mom, uh, to terminate that would also mean terminating the healthy pregnancy. And mm -hmm. so these issues are complicated. They're, mm -hmm. When people talk about these black and white issues. I remember as a little kid stumbling, my parents were involved. <laughs> this may come as a surprise. My parents were deeply involved in the pro-life movement in the 80s uh, to the mm -hmm. point where they were sued by an abortion clinic. And they oh, had wow. a lot of um, images that were, you know, in books and stuff. And I remember as a little girl, I loved books and finding images of aborted babies. Uh, yeah. And knowing in my heart that was so wrong, that was murder. You mm -hmm. know, all you had to do was look. All I had to do was look to know. Um, yep. And yet, fast forward 20 years, and I'm sitting there going, I, I wouldn't kill my baby and thinking, what would I do? And my husband's saying, uh, we choose your life, right? So I understand how messy this conversation can be from a woman's perspective or from somebody sure. who's had some struggles, right? So how do you speak to that? Because I do think, you know, yes, I, I'm like I said, I'm pro-life. But in that context and in the way that our culture talks about this, 
there's mm-hmm. not a lot of room for gray. It's either this or it's that. When there's mm-hmm. situations that get kind of messy. Yeah, there are situations that get kind of messy, but those are um, rare. So we don't justify abortion on demand because of an ethical dilemma that might happen or has happened a few times. Um, th- th- think about it. It, it, w- it would be akin to saying um, we want to um, murder all five-year-olds because some of them have leukemia. It doesn't follow. Um, mm-hmm. It's not. It's not the right type of thing. So um, I've I've taught on abortion multiple times. I've preached on it. And one of the things that is very important is is how we have to be gracious and kind because many people, many people in the church, many women, many men have encouraged abortions or had abortions. And so we can't be ignorant to that. Many, many, many people in our society have had abortions. So sometimes it's such a sore subject that even just presenting evidence comes across as very aggressive and, and mean even if that's not how you're trying to be. So we have to be gracious and kind and ask questions and, hey, have you been in this situation? And always remind people that God is loving and there's grace. And we have multiple places in scripture where he forgives and loves people who've done horrendous things. So we have to lead with that. But logically, we cannot justify all abortions because of tubular pregnancies. Uh, I was preaching one time and I had a woman come up to me crying afterward and she, this was her situation. She said, I had a tubular pregnancy and we had to, we had to abort the child. Am I, was that a sin? Am I, you know, that's what she asked me. And um, I'm not very emotional. I'm a very logical <laughs> truth type person. That's really? just who I am. And that's probably a flaw. Maybe I'm a sociopath. I don't know. Right. Um, I have emotions, but so in my head, I'm like, no, of course not. Like, of course not, because the baby can't live in your fallopian tubes. The baby will die either way. Right. So the, the ethical dilemma for her was let two people die or save one. Mm-hmm. That's that's the ethical dilemma. That's that's what you have to decide. What is the better thing to do in that really horrible situation? Yeah. To to save one instead of let two die. That's what that's what of course that's what you do, you know? So um, there are ways, there are ethical um, systems and, and ways to think through those difficult situations that, that we're put in because we live in a fallen world. It's not ideal, but what do we choose? How do we choose the lesser of two bad things, which I think honors God? And, and you have this you know, with the, um, the midwives in Egypt, in Exodus, right? Pharaoh told them to kill all the newborn uh, male uh, Israelite babies. And instead of doing that, they chose to lie. So that they're they're put in a hard place. What do you do? Do you murder babies or do you lie to the king of the world? They lied because that was the lesser of two bad things. And it said that God blessed them mm-hmm. for what they did. So sometimes in this world, not often, but sometimes we're put in a place and a rock between a rock and a hard place, and we have to make the best decisions that we can that are a higher uh, moral good. So I, I that gets into what kind of moral system you believe we exist in. And I believe in uh, moral, graded moral absolutism that certain sins are worse than other sins. They're all equally wrong, but they're not all equally bad, right? Murdering somebody is worse than stealing a candy bar. Not to make you guilty before God, they're equal, but there's severe consequences for murder, whereas stealing a stick of gum it's not as it's not as detrimental to people, mm. and so when we're when we're put in those situations, we have to make moral decisions, and that, that's why lots of hospitals hire bioethicists to help people make these tough decisions um, when they're in the hospital, end of life issues especially. All that to say, we cannot justify murdering healthy babies that aren't in fallopian tubes that are in the right place. Because sometimes babies are in fallopian tubes. Does, does that make sense? Like you can't justify yeah, it, the, it, the, that and normalize it because of these aberrant situations. It does. Let me throw another one at you. Yeah. Um, I know that in some European countries, uh, maybe even Denmark, um, we're seeing us from, uh, the rate of children being born with birth defects, anything from Down syndrome up to, you know, there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. 
um, it's very, those children are rarely born. Yeah. Um, in fact, I even read a, an article in the Atlantic a few years ago that was talking about that, about these mercy killings is basically how it's described, you know, that, uh, yeah. there were advocates coming and speaking to people about, Hey, you know, these are your options, but it would be better basically for your child to never be born because, and that's the more loving, the more ethical thing to do. And mm -hmm. actually that is a worldview that a lot of people have adopted because I think it's 98, 99% of those, um, children are aborted. How do you respond to that from a Christian perspective? Well, uh, a couple of things. Because um, I, I read a, I read something, this was a few years ago now, but Iceland was boasting about how they had eradicated Down syndrome from their society. And then when you read into it, it what they meant was they just killed everybody who had Down syndrome through abortion. Mm -hmm. So they hadn't eradicated it. They just don't let people who have it live. That's a very different thing. Um, Hitler tried to do the same type of thing. Uh, he tried to to kill all mentally handicapped and physically handicapped people. Um, and it stems from the same worldview that, that there isn't a God that, you know, nature is all there is. And that we're just a type of animal. And I would euthanize my dog if they were really sick. Therefore I can euthanize my grandma if she's really sick. It, it comes from that worldview from a Christian perspective. Uh, we have a distinction between animals and humans. We're not the same type of thing. We don't have the same type of soul. Um, and so uh, we would say, no, um, God's the one who gave life. Uh, it's his prerogative when he takes it. And then people say, what about suffering? Like you, you want a kid to go through life having Down syndrome? And in my mind, I think, well, a couple of things. Most Down syndrome people I've met are very happy about life and they're very joyful and they're awesome. And I, I used to work in special needs ministry at a church out here. We had 50 special needs people that got bussed in from their homes every Sunday. We did camps with them. It was awesome. Um, they can understand the gospel. They know what loving people is. They know what serving God is. They know what worship is. And so whenever we dehumanize someone for arbitrary, arbitrary traits, um, we're, we're committing genocide whether it's for skin color, whether it's for mental abilities, whatever. Um, we are committing genocide based on arbitrary traits that we have deemed aren't good, right? I think if you'd ask a person with Down syndrome if we should have killed them, they would say, no, I don't think so, right? Yeah. So, so this idea that we can determine. And then the other thing is, is how far does that go? So now are we saying, well, if you have, if you have dyslexia, you're not worthy of living. I don't want my child suffering through this life if they have dyslexia, so let's just kill them. What, what, what trait uh, is where we stop? Does that make sense? Who, who's in charge of how far we go with this? And then it gets into the end of life issue too. Well, they're not uh, a contributing member of society anymore. They're just taking their social security check. Um, so we deem them not worthy of life. I don't think human beings have that prerogative. I think only God does. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes um, we short circuit what God wants to do by, um, especially the end of life stuff, by uh, allowing people to kill themselves or have a physician help them kill themselves. Uh, because honestly, they're trying to avoid suffering is what they're doing. They're believing that happiness is the ultimate end goal in life. And when I'm suffering, I want to alleviate that. But when I read scripture, and I look at what God does through this life, he often uses suffering for a greater good. Uh, God's goal for us in this life isn't happiness. And if it was, he's a miserable failure. <laughs> His goal for us in this life is for us to live with him forever without sin infecting us. And suffering can cause people to wake up and to think about what's coming in the afterlife. I was just talking to my wife and, and she was saying how her mom was talking to her sister and her sister's getting older and her husband's older than she is. And now she's talking about, you know, what happens after death? Th this idea that we're going to suffer and die looms over us and it, and it makes us think about the important things of life, which again is why I think God doesn't let people live to 900 years anymore because you don't have to get serious about anything. Um, so, um, there are many reasons why I think it's horrific to kill other human beings based on traits that are arbitrary that we could pick. Why, why can't we do that for skin color? What's the difference between Down syndrome and skin color? What's the difference between, do you know what I mean? Height. 
or or um, location or economics. Like who gets to decide what reasons we kill people for? Mm-hmm. And that's where I don't think any human has a right to do that. So I'm not just saying women don't have a right to do that. I don't think men have a right to arbitrarily kill innocent people. I don't think any of us should be able to do that. So that's 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 what I say to that. And that gets into the scientific evidence and the philosophical evidence for why the pro-life position uh, makes the most sense. Mm. So our culture has really shifted in the last 30 or so years. I mm-hmm. can't remember which Clinton said it, but they were saying abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. I think uh, was that uh, was that Bill or Hillary? I don't remember. Oh, um, I don't. Know. You know who I'm I talking about? Yeah, that that was you know the position in the '90s, mm-hmm. and now we're at a place where it's like uh, shout your abortion. You have nothing to be ashamed of. It's your right. How dare they take away this from you? Yeah. Why? I mean. Why do you think that's happened to our culture, Robbie? And how how do we respond to that in truth and love? Our culture um, has become a culture of death, and it's because sex is the new religion. So, um, with with the whole free love hippie movement rebelling against um, traditional morality, Christian morality, really, um, this idea crept in, and this this is where it's it, it is really twisted. But our society believes that the purpose of sex is pleasure. Um, and that's not true. Um, is sex pleasurable? Yes. Is the purpose of sex pleasure? No. Um, the purpose of sex is procreation, oneness with your spouse, and a foretaste of heaven. Um, the, the God who can create sexual joy, what other things can he make? Like that's kind of the idea. Like, oh my gosh, what awaits us in eternity? Um, but pleasure is an incentive to do the action that creates that, that brings about the purposes of it. So, so for instance, let's, let's apply it to another appetite that we have with food is the purpose of food pleasure. No, is food pleasurable? Yes. But what's the purpose of food? Well, nutrition and to keep me going in health. When I believe that pleasure's the purpose of food, that leads me down a really destructive path, actually, right? When I'm eating in and out seven times a day. It's so funny. You're, chase, right? it's so funny you're talking about this because I went on a rabbit trail on YouTube today and I watched two videos. One was about a near-death experience where the guy was talking about he wasn't a Christian, but he was talking about how he almost died. And he had this like orgasmic event where it just was like love and everything was mm-hmm. wonderful and amazing. And then the other one was a guy critiquing the uh, self-love body movement where he's ta- where people were shouting the same kind of thing. Uh, I just ate all these burgers and I love my body just the way it is. It's wonderful just the way it is. Meanwhile, yeah. the guy is you know, he was uh, using a lot of choice words, but he's saying like, are you crazy? Because you're unhealthy, you're miserable, you're pointing all these people down this way of destruction, you're going to die from heart disease or all these different things. And it was so it, it was so black and white in that case, right? Because you see his body, his choice. That's but that is the narrative of our culture. That that know, is becoming is. more and more prevalent. So what do you do? It is, that? and it's because it's because autonomy and hedonism is what we live for. My personal pleasure is what I live for in this world, and sex brings such immense pleasure that people think that's the penultimate thing to live for. Um, but the problem is when we start to worship sex and believe that pleasure is its purpose, then we do the activity to get pleasure as an end in itself. So that's what's happened is is the the free love movement started with that. Just love people, just love whoever you want to have sex with, whenever you want to have sex, no big deal. No morals. Then um, what happened was contraceptives technologically got advanced to the point where you could have sex and the purpose of sex of having a baby was was not uh, a consequence anymore, right? And then you started to have no-fault divorce, which is, man, marriage isn't even a binding thing anymore. So you can have sex for a while, and if you're not having fun in it, you can get out of it with no-fault divorce. And then abortion. Abortion comes along as the last type of 
measure to eliminate the consequence of having sex. But if pleasure's the purpose, then let's kill the baby. But I, the baby's the purpose of it. Like that—that's—that's that's our distinction with 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 this. That's what Christians believe. Is no, that's that's the purpose of the activity, and pleasure drives you towards the purpose. But our culture doesn't believe that. So that's why this is so prevalent. That's why I should be able to do this whenever I want, wherever I want, because me and my pleasure are more important than other human beings. I mean, and that, and that may sound crude, but that's the truth of it. Every argument on the pro-life side is about the selfish wants or needs of the mother. Finances, I want to go back to school, I'm not ready. It's never about this child. And so we've dehumanized the child by saying things like, well, it can't feel pain the same way. It doesn't have as much intellect. It's not as advanced as me, which is true. But that doesn't make it not a human being. So we dehumanize people we want to marginalize. And we've seen this with the slave trade. We've seen this in Nazi Germany. We see this all over the place. The difference between those things that happen is our culture readily accepts that those were horrible, right? And this is something that people are adamant um, you know, I mean, even the argument against pro-lifers half the time is take your religious views and, you know, suck it up because we don't want to hear it. Yeah. So, yeah. but they I, have a religious view, like their view is coming from their worldview. So this whole idea of you can't legislate morality, um, all laws legislate morality. <laughs> That's what right. they do. That's literally the point of a law to legislate how people behave. Right. So they're they're doing it and telling us that we can't. It's a really it's a really smart tactic um, to say we can do it, but you can't. But it's just not true. Mm -hmm. And so no, we we should stand up for the marginalized in our society. And the most marginalized fragment of our society are babies in the wombs of their mothers. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about somebody listening right now who maybe you know she believes in God, she's a Christian, and she's listening to this and she's thinking. Yeah, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, even if I said something to my friends in passing, they would attack me. Or if I posted something online, I would be told, you know, all these different things. And it would mm -hmm. really be really very hard. Or I would hear a story about how, um, you know, a friend had to choose abortion, and she had no other choice. How mm -hmm. do you respond to people in our culture with love in the midst of this narrative that says uh, self-love is the most important ethic? Well, telling the truth is a part of loving people. And this isn't my opinion. This is scripture. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter that everyone quotes at every wedding I've ever been to, right? It says, love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. So one of the loving things that we need to do for people is tell them the truth. That doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it. That doesn't mean we have to be harsh and unloving and unkind. And it's easy to just yell truth at people and then to act like a total dirtbag. That's easy. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about being gracious and truthful together. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And so that's the balance that we need to find. Our society would rather just be gracious and never speak truth to people, which is completely unloving. Because if somebody has cancer and you don't want to ruin their day as the doctor, so you don't tell them about it, that's not loving. Well, they might be upset with me. You still got to tell them. They need to know what's real. That's the most loving thing that you could do. And so um, I understand it's not fun to be called names and it's not fun to lose friends and it's not fun to be bullied. But am I living to not rock the boat or am I living to stand for Christ? That, and that, that's a tough decision. Now, I think that we can be gracious and kind about it, but I do think we have to stand up and speak truth. I, and sometimes I'll tell people who, who say stuff like that, okay, so if you were living in Nazi Germany, in order not to make your neighbors you know, think you were crazy, you just wouldn't say anything about the, the Holocaust. You, you wouldn't do anything. You don't want to rock the boat. And they would go, no, of course not. Say, I don't know how this is different. And now you're talking about what's the unborn. And that's the one question you want to hijack the conversation to every time. If it's a human being, we can't just kill it because it's inconvenient. And what, one, of the, one of the tactics that we use at Standard Reason is called trot out the toddler. 
every argument that's brought up against the pro-life position, replace the unborn with a with a three-year-old. You bring out the toddler and say, okay, so if a mom has too many kids and she doesn't want her three-year-old anymore, she can shoot it. People say, no, of course not. That's crazy. Well, what's the difference? And now you're going to get back to talking about, well, the unborn, I don't think it's the same type of a human being. Oh, okay. Well, that's what we should talk about. Is it a human being or is it not? What if the mom wants to go back to school? What if she's poor and living in poverty? You know, whatever. Can she just shoot a three-year-old because of these circumstances? Most people in our society would say, no, you can't do that. Well, why can you do that when it's a little bit younger? And now you've put the onus on them to answer and to argue for their position because I'm being consistent with life all across the board. I don't think we should be able to kill innocent life just because things get tough. Uh, the other thing you said is some people say that was my only option. It's never your only option. That is not true at all. That's a false dilemma saying either this or this. No, uh, adoption is an option, right? Um, we, you, like you said, story is so important in our society. We've seen so many people share stories about how their mom attempted to abort them or was going to abort them, but didn't. And, and they're alive and their mom's still alive and they made it. Like I haven't heard of one story where a mom chose life and then the mom died in poverty. Have you ever heard of that story? So I think these fears are all myths that people say in order to, um, Keep doing something pretty horrific. And, and I do want to say this. Um, I don't think that every woman who's aborted a child is some evil, crazy monster. I don't mean that. Uh, I'm just arguing for the positions, right? I think women who are in these crisis pregnancy situations are really in a tough situation. And that's why we as Christians need to be there to love and to help guide and to support financially and emotionally. And this is what's amazing, Janelle is you know there are three times the amount of Christian crisis pregnancy centers in our country as there are Planned Parenthoods. Hmm. We have privately funded three times the amount of crisis pregnancy clinics than the government has. So we are answering this call. So when people say these things about, well, you don't care, no, we care more than you. <laughs> Literally, we put our money into it. We go on marches. We support financially. We we donate our time. No, we care more more than you or the government does. But that's that's just not the narrative. But these are facts, right? Not opinions. What's your evidence and reason for your for your argument? Well, we have three times as many of these clinics privately funded by Christians as are publicly funded by the government. Mm. So we do care. Uh, we do care a lot, and we're doing something about it with our time and with our money. So it's never the only option, is what I'm trying to say. It's never the only option. That's a that's a false dilemma. Yeah. Well, I want to bring up something that it's not theory for me. It's something mm -hmm. that I've personally experienced, and that is, I have. I mean, I've lived you know <laughs> long enough that I have quite a few friends that have come to me and. Uh, privately shared with me about their abortion experiences. Mm -hmm. And usually, regardless of whether it's a woman in her 60s or her 30s or younger, um, there's a lot of shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. And shame in the fact that they've been silent about it. They don't know how to share about it. Uh, some of these women are Christian women who mm -hmm. have then not, they don't know how to carry that burden or to give it to other Christians, you know, maybe their pastor, their husband, whoever. Um, so it's wrapped up in this place of burial. <laughs> and yeah. it's been uh, very, uh, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but it's been very uh, tender to walk that journey with my friends. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them, women that are not Christians who have said it flippantly to me or when they're, you know, inebriated <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, you can tell it's something that weighs heavy on them. Um, yeah. I, I don't know why if, or if this happens to every woman, but um, I mean, I can think of a handful of women just off the top of my, top of my head who've done this, who've shared with me this. Um, I talked to one of them who was in her 30s. And she had all this shame and guilt wrapped up in her, you know, her abortion. 
but then we watched October baby together mm -hmm. and she's like, I don't, I do not want to think of my baby like that or that, that choice like that. I can't think mm -hmm. of it like that. What advice or encouragement could you give to someone who might be listening, who is post-abortive Robbie, because they may agree at this point in their life as several of my friends have that, well, that was wrong. That was a bad choice. But then how do I deal with the shame and guilt of a decision I made? Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a really important thing to actually um, to press into if people have done that. And like I said before, every church in America has women who have committed abortion and has men who pressured abortion. Um, so we can't be so naive to think it's an out there problem. It's just a problem in our country. It's, I mean, it's huge. 64 million people have been murdered in the name of convenience since the 70s in our country. That's just here, not worldwide. Just here. I think our population is only like 330 million, and we've killed 65-ish million of our own people. Um, so, so we can't be naive about it. It's a real problem, and it does. It brings PTSD with it. It brings, like you said, guilt and shame. And, and unfortunately, it's not unnecessary guilt and shame. Um, they feel guilty because they are guilty. That's why I feel guilty of sin because I am guilty. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? It's not something I can just suppress. It's something I have to be have to deal with. And so, um, our church we have a post-abortive women's um, support group. It's called Surrendering the Secret. It's a national um, program that's for women who have had abortions who need help to walk through that. And so, this is where the church I think can come in. Is obviously we're pro-life. But if we're pro-life of all people, then we also care about mothers who have had abortions, right? That That's huge. We, we're not just saying we hate these people or we shun these people. No, 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 no. They also are victims of this poor choice. They also are victims of a lie that they believed was going to help them. And it doesn't. And I've heard the same stories as you. Every woman I've talked to who's had an abortion is ashamed of it has problems with it. If they had other kids, they always think about, man, my my child would have been this old. On the due date, they think about it. It haunts them. I mean, it literally haunts them. And so we need to come alongside as the church with these support groups to help women work through that PTSD, to help them grieve through what has happened. Not, not just in the sense that they were the ones who permitted it to happen. You got to work through that. But also just like any um, family member dying. You have to work through the grief of that. Um, and so I think that's a huge way Christians can um, can approach this issue is by having these groups in the church. Because what, what's cool about it is there's two things. First of all, you're helping people. Secondly, you're normalizing it, saying we expect you to be here. Uh, we want people who've made these mistakes in the past here at the church. If you have a post-abortive uh, group advertised in your bulletins or on your slides at church, what is that communicating to people? Just like if you have a same-sex attraction support group in your church, you're saying, look, we know this is stuff we all struggle with. We know all of us have made horrendous mistakes, and we know that Jesus is there to help walk us through it. And so that's what I think we should do is really have these groups um, in every church in America. I think that that would help a lot of people who have made bad choices in the past um, work through this and understand who they are in Christ. I like that. Um, you mentioned men. And I mm -hmm. was watching a video uh, not too long ago. I think it was a short, you know, reel on Instagram. But a Christian guy was talking about, uh, you know, men, uh, abortion is your problem too. And he was mm -hmm. going on and talking about um, men relinquishing, you know, their duty to protect women and instead using them, uh, yeah. putting pressure on them to, you know, whether it be sex or abortion and all these different things. And I think uh, there should be more ministry for, for men in this area. Is there that I'm not, not aware of Robbie? I mean, when I think of, you know, going to a post abortive group or whatever, are men being invited to those kind of things and those kind of conversations too, because um, it can be a real lonely road, right. Mm -hmm. To go through something like this. And it takes two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, of course. So are men being held accountable in this conversation, do you think? Um, and is the church responding to that? 
Probably not like men being held accountable. No way. Like men aren't even held accountable with kids that they do have in our country because divorce is just so easy and dads can walk away when they aren't having fun anymore. So no, men are not being held accountable. Um, and scripture clearly calls us to. Scripture is clear on what marriage is supposed to be. Scripture is clear on the sexual ethics that we're supposed to exhibit only within heterosexual marriage. And so, no, men are not being held accountable, but that's not a Christian thing. That's a that's a society thing. Um, but I do know at the crisis pregnancy centers here in Phoenix that I support and, and I do things with, they have um, support groups for dads. They have they have groups for men and their wives to come in or and their girlfriends to come in and to work through these issues together. So, yes, it is being addressed for free. It's not like we charge for these things either. The help is available for people who who are wanting it. Um, but Planned Parenthood gets all the press, like they're the great white savior. And yet, do you know Planned Parenthood, I think, charges $80 for a pregnancy test. Did you know that? Mm-mm. How much is a pregnancy test at Walgreens? <laughs> I don't know. Five, like 12 five bucks? bucks? 12 Six bucks? Maybe. Yeah, it's 12 bucks. Why does Planned Parenthood charge people $80? Yeah. Because they don't care is why. Because they're about making money. Do you know how much an abortion costs at Planned Parenthood? About 600 bucks. Is that helping people? Yeah. Why do we give them millions of dollars a year to charge people? Um, the crisis pregnancy centers that I'm a part of here in the Valley do ultrasounds for free. They actually do births for free. They have doctors come in and volunteer their time. Nurses come and volunteer their time. And you can deliver your baby free of charge in these clinics. Yeah. Um, the help is there if people want it. Um, but, but that's the thing is I I think selfishness and all of us as humans is a, is a big driving factor and it overrides that we just want the easy fix, which usually has really devastating consequences. Yeah. Well, and a lot of it is fear, right? Like if I were to have this baby, it would change my life or I would have to come clean to these people who don't know I'm sexually active or, you know, there's a lot of different things going on, uh, depending on your situation. But I wanted to bring this conversation around to something that I think is really important. Um, Because, you know, maybe there's someone listening who's not a Christian. And I feel like the gospel is central to this. How -hmm. would you um, share the gospel in this conversation of of pro-life? Why? What's the uh, relationship between the gospel of Jesus and and life a culture of life versus a culture of death well a couple of things um god is a pro-life god he created this life that we now live in um and he's given us the possibility of eternal life so he seems to be about life um jesus says multiple times i came that i might give life and give it abundantly so god is a god of life and satan comes to kill and steal and destroy so death, uh, in any case, is the opposite of what God wanted, um, and evil has brought about the decaying of us and everything around us into the state of death. And so what, what Jesus has done is he's come and he gave himself up to that decay process. He gave himself up to death so that as our substitute, he could take on our crimes against God. And then if we trust that he did that for us, we can have eternal life. Uh, You can't work for it. You can't erase your past issues because none of us can do enough good to fix our past. Um, The Bible's clear that if you've committed one sin, you're guilty of it all. Um, So that's a pretty tall standard that God demands 100% perfection. (laughs) On that standard, none of us are making it. So what we would need is somebody who does the 100% perfect life for us and then gives it to us. And that's Jesus. He lived a 100% perfect life, died the death we all deserved so that we could be given his perfection and be qualified for heaven. And so that's that's what it comes down to is death is never uh, a part of what God wants for human beings. And to be honest, it's not something that any of us want for ourselves. It's the biggest fear in our life is death that's looming. What happens after death? Where do I go? Um, and so if that's true which I think it is, and if that's reality that all of us are living in, then we should be people of life. We should be people who are for life, which is why Christians created hospitals, which is why Christians created modern-day pharmacology, which is why Christians created air conditioning, 
um, because we're <laughs> for life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like this is this is what we're for. We're for the reversal of this curse that is killing all of us. Mm. But the ultimate reversal won't come through technological advancements or medical advancements on human effort. It only comes through what Jesus did on the cross, ultimate redemption, ultimate fixing to have the life that he designed us to have in the first place. Mm. And so anybody who's done anything, any sin, murder, adultery, um, whatever, if you trust in what Jesus did for you, his perfect life gets applied to you. He dies for all your crime and his righteousness covers you. So all of us need that no matter what we've done or haven't done, which is kind of cool that Christianity puts every human being on a level playing field. There's no partiality with God. The mm -hmm. Bible says over and over and over again, we shouldn't show partiality because he doesn't. So I shouldn't look down my nose at women who've had abortions. I shouldn't look down my nose at homosexuals. I shouldn't look down my nose at Nazis because I'm guilty just like they're guilty. And Jesus can save all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going along with that, I know Sina mentioned when her and I talked the first time, um, she was like, okay, so Christians say that they have all these Christian ethics, you know, regarding sexuality, no sleeping mm -hmm. around, uh, you know, pro-life, etc. Um, but then they don't necessarily live by them. Um, mm -hmm. She said that's confusing for someone who's not a Christian. Um, and as you know, Robbie, there's plenty of Bible-believing Christians who have gotten pregnant out of marriage sure. and had secret or not-so-secret abortions, etc. Um, just for someone like Sina who sees that and thinks, well, what does that, what does that mean? Um, so our fallenness, it, it still extends even when we're Christians. I mean, what do you do? Sure. Uh, how would you respond to, to Sina's thought there? Yeah, well, I would say, well, when Christians don't live up to the Christian standard, it doesn't mean that the standard is wrong. It means that the Christian is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's part of our, our worldview is that none of us can live up to the standard. So it, it actually reinforces what we believe that we can't do it. Um, so I would say, yeah, this is exactly what you'd expect to find if the Bible is telling the truth. Um, but the other thing I, I do like to say to people is <clears throat> let's imagine a world where people did live out the Christian sexual ethic. Okay, so just think about this, Janelle. If people waited until they were married to have sex with their spouse and they stayed with the same spouse for their entire life, that's the Christian ethic. What would a world look like? Well, sex trafficking would be eliminated, right? Billion dollar business in the world, gone. Pornography would be eliminated. Um, kids growing up without their mom or dad in their home because of divorce would be eliminated. Would that totally change the landscape of this world? Yes. What else would happen? Monkeypox wouldn't exist. You think about all these diseases that are sexually transmitted because of promiscuity, whether heterosexual or homosexual, all of that disease gone. If people lived out a Christian sexual ethic, it would make the world an immensely better place and everybody recognizes that to be the case. Is that interesting? So maybe God told us what we should do because he knows how we operate and it informs our life so much that it's it's the way we're supposed to be because it's what's best for us. He's not trying to suck our fun or come down as a harsh jerk to to you know make our lives miserable. And no, in fact, he's telling us if you live the way I created you to live, you'll flourish. But we don't believe that. We believe pleasure is what we're all about. We believe that instant gratification is what we're all about. And so we'll go out to get it in any way that we want. And we don't care if we have to kill a lot of people in the process to have it. Hmm. Um, if the Christian sexual ethic was was followed, abortion wouldn't happen. Yeah. I mean, can you, you think about all of the ramifications of deviating away from just that thing God tells us to do and what's happened in the world? And I, I've talked with non-Christians and I said, could you imagine a world like that? Do you like pedophilia? <laughs> do you like child, you know, slave, uh, sexual slaves? No, of course not. Well, what's feeding all of that? Mm -hmm. It's this worldview sexual ethic where we've made this God and we'll do anything to satisfy it. And so that's one thing I like to talk to people about too, saying imagine a world where everybody did what God said. 
It would be really good. And I think everybody in it's, yeah, that would, that would be awesome. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I had other questions here, but we're running uh, short on time and we always ask the final question and uh, I don't remember your answer from last time. Um, but the finding something real podcast, Robbie, it's about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love all things that can be found in relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Which of those stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Okay, say me again. Authenticity. It's uh, real as an acronym. Restoration, eternity, Restoration. authenticity, and love. Hmm. I think that um, eternity is something lately I've been contemplating a lot. We're going through Revelation at church. We're, we're going straight through the book. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. And even like what I was talking to you about, like what, what I do right now for the Lord will last, right? It will last forever, not just for 80 years, not just as long as my bank account lasts, not just as long as my body works. It'll last forever. And so I, I think about investing in that every day. And that's what Peter tells us that too. He says, don't be short-sighted. Don't think this life's all that there is. Like this is nothing compared to what awaits us. And so I, I try to live with that perspective every day. Am I making investments in eternity or am I getting caught up in the here and now and, and short-sighted on the mundane you know, stupid, useless things. Um, so eternity is a big deal. And when I stand before the Lord, I, I don't want him to say you wicked and lazy slave. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Those come from the same parable. It's the same parable. So when I stand before the beam and seat of Jesus, I want him to say, you did a good job. I'm really proud of you. Um, and then whatever rewards I get, the crown of righteousness or the crown of life or the white stone with a name on it, no one knows, you know, all those things that are promised. Man, I just don't know if anything would be better than hearing Jesus say, you did good. Mm. Um, man, that that's what I live for. That's what I want to hear. That's who I want to please. And if it hurts other people's feelings or it makes other people mad because I'm trying to tell them the truth in a loving way, um, that's okay. Because I'm trying to live for that day, not for my comfort and ease and not rocking the boat here. Yeah. But that doesn't give me license to be a punk about it. Like, like just I want to make sure I say that. I can't just act. I have to act in the way Jesus did while standing for truth. And if people are upset about it, that's okay. Uh, because I'm living for him. It's good. It's really good. Well, Robbie Lashua, I think I still pronounced your name correctly. Close. It was so, yeah, it was great. It was good. I just rolled off. Uh, ben, thank you so much. Thank you for coming back here. I really yeah, appreciate absolutely. your Thanks candor and the way that God's prepared you for uh, conversations like this. This is a tough topic. I know I gave you some different things that weren't on my question list here. I just <laughs> went with them. But I appreciate, right. I appreciate you doing that. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him. Until next time.